The pandemic has brought home to all of us the importance of the public services we sometimes take for granted. Not just the NHS, but schools, local councils, the police and prison service have all faced huge challenges keeping the show on the road. And clear leadership has been crucial to this task. Now, more than ever, our public services need great head teachers, chief constables, great prison governors and hospital directors. But what makes for great leadership in the public sector? How do you make sure your organisation is delivering for the public and not squandering hard-earned taxes? How do you handle a crisis or navigate the complex relationship with an ever-changing government? I'm Justin Russell, and I work alongside the justice system as Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Probation. I've spent my life working with and learning from inspirational leaders who have done all of these things and more. In this special series for Bridges to the Future, I'll be speaking to just some of those who have survived and thrived at the top to find out how they did it and what they can teach you. So join me for a lesson in leadership. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Justin Russell. In 2009, just two months after she'd become First Lady, Michelle Obama paid a visit to Elizabeth Garrett Anderson's school, a girls' comprehensive in North London. It was to have a profound effect on her. Writing about the visit nearly 10 years later, she reflected on the way the girl she met there had touched her heart and about the sense of purpose that visit had given her, to devote herself to girls' education and their life chances. The energy I felt thrumming in that school, she said, had nothing to do with obstacles. It was the power of 900 girls striving. My guest today is the head teacher who greeted Michelle Obama that day and whose leadership created that thrumming energy. A head teacher for 20 years, she's been recognised by the Evening Standard as one of London's most influential people and in 2020 was on the National Kindness and Leadership 50 Leading Lights list. Her name is Joe Dibbs. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. I guess an obvious question to start with. What, what do you think Michelle Obama saw in your school that day she came to visit that made such an impression on her? I think she saw herself. And she says that, doesn't she, in her autobiography, Becoming, that she recognised herself in those young women, many of them from not particularly advantaged backgrounds, but all wanting and wanting to do well, wanting to do well at education. And she felt then, I think, that she had a purpose. I guess being first lady is a pretty difficult role. You're not the president, but I think what she did, she found a way of being able to make a difference through her tenure and to devote her time to making sure that girls across the world, not just at EGA or in the States, had a better chance. And it wasn't just a one-off visit, was it? She came back to visit Elizabeth Garrison School again and she invited some of your girls to the White House. Yes, and, and that's one of the quite remarkable things about her, really, Justin, is that she, despite her busy schedule, despite everything else going on as the, the First Lady of the United States, she, she kept her faith with EGA. She came back in 2011 
as part of, now that was her state visit in, in 2011, and she invited some girls to Oxford University. And then in 2012, she invited a group of girls to the White House. We were there at the same time as the state visit of the then Prime Minister David Cameron. And then again in 2018, the launch of Becoming, she came back to EGA again for the British launch, if you like. And so on the stage at EGA, she once again had an audience of, of several hundred girls where she listened to their questions and engaged with them again. So quite quite remarkable, really. It was. And now thinking about your own career, you've been ahead for 20 years, starting off as a deputy and then ahead in Tower Hamlets in London. What made you want to become ahead in the first place, do you think? I didn't when I first started teaching. It was a bit of a step by step, really. I wanted to be a teacher. I realised that from the first teaching practice that I did, how you can transform lives really in the, just in the classroom. You have an enormous power as a teacher to set the climate. And it was a, an Israeli, actually, teacher and child psychologist who described about setting the climate in a classroom. And the huge overwhelming responsibility that you have to either make a child's life either just joyous or actually just miserable. And if you can do that in the classroom, I think at every step I felt that in moving forward, going climbing that leadership ladder, you have more potential to ensure that actually you can make a difference to more children rather than just in your classroom. And then I suppose the final thing that was, I was working in Tower Hamlets as a deputy, a fantastic head teacher, and I loved working there. I loved working in the school. It had been a real struggle, a real challenging place, but we, we'd made such great strides. And then he went on secondment for a term. So I had the opportunity to be head teacher. And then when I realised he was going to be coming back, I just knew that it was a role that I wanted to carry on, that I'd really, really enjoyed it. I felt that I'd learned an awful lot, but I felt that I'd begun to make a difference too. So at that point, I decided that I would apply to become a head teacher. Do you think you have to have been a, a good teacher to become a good head, or are the two things very different? Do you think people who haven't been teachers could be head teachers? Mm, that's tricky. I, I think it really helps. You don't have to have done every job in an organisation to be a great leader, but the key purpose of schools is to provide good teaching and learning. And I think had I not been a teacher before becoming a head teacher, I would have found it very, very difficult to understand what the role was, to understand what the pressures were, to understand the dynamics of a classroom. It's not just a theoretical process. There are 30 individual students in there and a teacher it's very dynamic and very organic and we're not just producing something through a production line so I think being able to teach and knowing where the pressures are and knowing where you can make a difference is a huge benefit when you go into leadership you need to know what really good teaching and learning looks like and, and what's interesting is I, I taught when I first went to EGA as a head teacher, and I think it's it's good initially for a head teacher to teach. You need to model what good teaching is, but actually the students don't particularly know you're a head teacher, and you have to every time you go into a school, you have to earn their respect and their regard 
once again. So it was very good for me to go into teach because I understood exactly what the challenges in the new school that I was joining. And you talked about the role of teachers in creating a climate in a classroom. When you become a head, you're creating a climate in a whole school, in a whole organisation. What, what's the specific role of head teachers, do you think, in creating that climate in, a, in an outstanding school? Mm, it's When I think about outstanding schools, because people often write about what makes a great school, what makes an outstanding school, and always for me, there is the notion, there is no blueprint, there's no recipe, because if there were, every school would be outstanding. You wouldn't have to choose your schools. Today, when we're recording this, Justin, is National Offer Day for students going into secondary school. And it's always a really, really tense time, you will know as a parent, of finding out which school your child is going to go to for their secondary education. Well, if there was a recipe and a blueprint for a great school, you, you wouldn't have all that tension. But the head's role in particular is about capturing, shaping and articulating the vision and understanding the context of the school. So I, I've been ahead in two different schools, very different schools. And I was a very different head in the two different schools. And I was a very different head at the end of 16 years at EGA than I was at the beginning of 16 years, because the context of the school is very, very important. But I do think that heads particularly have to be very clear and explicit about where they're coming from, what it is that we're trying to achieve, about the moral purpose of the school, about how the school can make a difference to the life chances of the young people. They have to empower others and they have to make the job doable so that other people want to inspire to do it as well. They have to build, if you like, a very strong infrastructure so that other leaders can step up as well. But I think the, the overriding thing is, as a head teacher and any senior leader in a school, is to enable others to do their job better. That you've got people who can teach well, you've got people who can run all sorts of the, all the back functions of a school. And as a head, you've got, it's not about you, it's about making sure that they can do their job really well. Um, one of the things that when I left my substantive post quite recently, that kept being said to me, and I hadn't realised it until people kept repeating it, was you made me realise I could do things that I never thought I could do. Now, I think I probably knew that about young people. I hadn't quite realised the importance of doing that for our staff. So I'm, I'm really glad that it happened, but I'm not sure that it was at the forefront of my mind all the time. So for me, it's about making sure that we've got the best people and they can be the, the best that they can be. You mentioned the role of head teachers in setting a vision, and that's something that I think you've always had a very clear view on. And early on in your time at Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, with some sponsorship, I think, from the Guardian newspaper, you, you invested in a rebranding of the school and thinking about how you projected the school to the outside community. And you came up with a strap line that uh, EGA was about learning without limits. T tell me a bit about that process of deciding what you wanted your brand to be. 
Well, I think the, the process is, is probably more important than the branding in some ways. And, and branding wasn't a word that I used. If I just give you a bit of history around this, really. When I arrived at the school, we did not have a good reputation in the local area at all. I spent a, a lot of my time trying to troubleshoot between the community and the school. And but what I could see that there were the pockets of real excellence there. And if we could just promote these and let other people see them, we would change the way that the school was perceived. But because the school had such a bad reputation, it also meant that the students themselves thought that they were in a school that was not particularly good. They didn't have pride in it. They didn't feel proud to be there. And for many of them, it wasn't a positive choice to be there. They had had places allocated to them. So we didn't have the buy-in from their families either. So there was an ongoing relationship with the Guardian newspaper at the time. They were just down the road and they came to see me and said, we always do something with you once a year. We put some resource in and we work with you. And I said, in the past, we've had an artist in residence and a poet in residence. But what I said to them was, I'd really like you to help me to get the message out about the real strengths of this school, because there are so many, but it's very hard to overcome this reputation. And it was them who told me that I wanted to rebrand, and I shied away from the idea at first, because rebranding sounded very corporate and not the sorts of things that schools engaged with. But I went with it, and they brokered a relationship and paid for two young designers who run, run a company. And very hard for me, I let go of a bit of control I passed it over to a group of the students to work with these designers and to work out basically what it is, what was the message we wanted to get out about EGA. And interestingly, The Guardian had just done them th that themselves. They'd moved to the Berliner format. And so there's a great conversation about rebranding, not just being about the externals that you're left with or that everybody else sees, but it's, it's an internal process about the way that you actually view yourself. So the group of 15 students took on that responsibility and they had to then share it with the rest of the school. They had to share all their thinking about what was really important at EGA, what we wanted people to think about us when they saw EGA students and how we could do that in physical terms. And because it was a guardian working with us, they were able to broker all sorts of other supports. So Bella Freud, the designer, actually was part of the design process for our uniform. And she actually said we launched the new uniform on International Women's Day a couple of years afterwards. And she said she's never, ever had a reception like that for a collection. If you can imagine all of EGA girls shouting and cheering as they saw that they were getting rid of the old maroon uniforms and seeing the quite smart pink and grey, which they could mix and match up a bit. Well, I don't think anybody who hasn't experienced that can, can imagine what it's like. But what it did was just generate this sense of pride. And on the first day of the new uniform, I had quite a few people as I did my normal patrols up and down Chapel Market to see what was going on and getting some feedback from everybody there. They talked about the way in which the girls walked differently, that they behaved differently just because they felt different about themselves. So I've gone into it with thinking 
well, I'll try this rebranding. I, I was absolutely converted that it was an incredibly powerful message. And the, the strap line that they came up with, and this was the brand designers coming back, feeding back everything that the girls had told them with this notion of without limits was absolutely spot on that it fitted what we believe in, that there should be absolutely no limits whatsoever in any respect on girls' achievement. And one of the great things about EJ is just how hugely diverse it is. You've got girls coming from so many different cultures and communities. How do you create a a shared culture and, and vision in those circumstances that everyone can buy into? And it sounded like that process was one that everyone did buy into. It, it was, and if, if in the manifestation of it and we, of the rebrand, if we think about the uniform, it had ways in which girls from different cultures with different codes of dress could actually still be part of it. That they are, it's not prescriptive in any one way, so that they can choose the bits of the uniform that would actually suit them and make them feel comfortable. But it's a bit more than that, too. It's about being really clear about the school as a place and that although we may all come from different backgrounds and different places, that creating an identity which is physical when you're in the school, but also not tangible at all, which is about the sense of who we are, what we believe in, how we treat each other. And knowing that when you step over the school gates, you have entered a different world because all our students will come with their backgrounds and their beliefs and their values. But to make that school work, it has to be that we create our own EGA sense of identity and community that everyone can subscribe to. And in doing that, making sure, too, that families know what that is as well, that we cannot allow certain behaviours that families may promote in the home or outside, that will not be acceptable within the school environment. As we've been discussing, EJ is a is a girls' school, but you've also taught in mixed schools, I think, over the years. Do you need different leadership styles for mixed schools as opposed to all-girls schools, do you think? Yeah, I was actually head teacher of a, a mixed school before I came to EGA and I was not 100% sure that I wanted to apply for the role of being head teacher in a girls' school. So I came on a preliminary visit before I made an application and I went around the school and I went into lots of classrooms and I I went into one classroom and it was an English lesson and there were 14-year-olds and they were doing performance poetry. It was performance poetry which they had written themselves and they were performing and they were doing it with such gusto, with no inhibition whatsoever and such skill in performance. And I just knew, I just knew that the girls in my present school, the mixed school, would not have done it in the same way and they wouldn't have done it in the same way because of the dynamic of the classroom. Now, there were very powerful young women there, but it just changes the dynamic. And and what I realised is that in girls' schools, you can really push boundaries. And so they are different in a way. I don't want to get into sort of thinking generalisations and stereotyping, but it is different 
that you've just got girls. And I, for example, in the mixed school, even though you have very, very powerful young women there, you would still find that they would be the ones who provided the pens for the boys, that the boys didn't bother carrying a pencil case and that the girls would think that's quite all right to provide them with their pens. And in a girls' school, you don't have that. The dynamic is different, but you know, believe me, every role is filled. Girls don't leave a vacuum. I suppose that the big difference is really that it can be a bit of a pressure cooker So the more diverse a community and diverse in gender, I mean, it tends to diffuse certain situations where you've only got one gender, maybe some behaviours can become amplified. And that's the big difference. But I think what we can do in girls' schools is that we can make sure not only do they see themselves as the high achievers, they don't leave that for other people, but also to really concentrate on building the confidence and the resilience which will allow them to make the most of those academic qualifications. And sometimes I think in a mixed school, it's not so easy to do that. Yeah. As you mentioned, you were a head teacher for... 15 or 16 years before becoming an executive head. Over that period of time, do you think it became tougher to be a head? Was it a job that people still wanted to take on? I was thinking about this, Justin. Many ways things have changed, but sadly, some things haven't changed. So, for example, in 20 years, we made some great strides, I think, in addressing disadvantage and closing that achievement gap. And, you know, the the most frightening thing really, isn't it, is that for so long that the biggest determinant of your educational outcomes was who your parents were and where you were born. And we started to redress that. And that was a really, really exciting times in education and being a head teacher was starting to address that inequality. But I think... During the course of the pandemic, we've lost an awful lot of time in doing that. And I I just feel over the past year or so, things have gone backwards and we're, we're going back to what it was, say, 20 years ago. What has changed, I suppose, is that the accountability measures are even more rigid and inflexible and quite narrow. That worries me that what we are judged on is so narrow and doesn't really take into account the whole gamut of schooling and what education should be about. I think that funding is far tighter now than it ever was. I I was very fortunate in starting my first headship at a time where a lot of money was put into education, a lot of money was put into education in London schools, and it gave us the opportunity to do lots of exciting things that are no longer possible, which I think is very hard when you're moving into headship. Different pressures in terms of, I think, mental health, the pressure and the manipulation of young people through much greater use of social media than there was 20 years ago, obviously. But you said, do you think people still want to be heads? Yes, they do. They're very aware of the pressures. They're very aware of the work-life balance is a, a huge issue. They're very aware that you have to be very resilient. And they're very good. We've got some very, very good up-and-coming leaders who also have very good training now to do that. But it's a big responsibility on on us as leaders to make sure that we we show that the job is doable. And when I worked as a a deputy head, the head teacher was very good 
And he made it absolutely clear when I was going off to be head teacher, he said, just Joe, do not, do not set a standard that nobody else can follow. So even if you want to work till 10 o'clock at night, go home and do it. Because if you don't, the message you will be giving is if you want to be ahead, these are the hours that you have to put in. And that's something that I've tried to, to say to other leaders in my team, that you don't need to be present all the time. You don't have to give that mo message and model that it's about being in school all the time. So, yes, in answer, it's changed. It's still tough. It's still absolutely so rewarding. And we have a, a really important job of encouraging the next generation of leaders to take up the role. And in, in 2015, you moved on from EGA to be executive head of a federation, ultimately, of four different in schools, in, including Elizabeth Garrett Anderson. So you started to stand back from day-to-day -day school management to... I guess, develop and support other people as head teachers. What, what did you learn from that experience? I think with all relationships where you are in some degree a coach or a mentor, it's really about building trust and establishing the relationship early on and that both parties have to be willing participants. So... There was never a situation I felt where I was having to be dictating what should be done, that it was very much about co-constructing what needs to be done within the school, how we can do that, what are the issues, how do we address them. And I think if you do it in that way, the head teachers, if you've got good head teachers, and we had four great head teachers in those roles, if you do it that way, people are far more inclined to carry out what you've discussed rather than if I came in and just said, well, this is how you're going to do it, then people can disengage from that. But if you've worked through it and decided this is a good way forward, it's very, very hard to disengage with it, which is why the model of executive headship, I always wanted to be still involved with the schools. And so I, it wasn't, I wasn't remote in any way. And I feel that the staff and the students in each of those four schools knew who I was and they knew that I was part of what was happening in the school. And as executive head, that was really, really important for me. Although I was working across four schools, an important part for me as a leader is being really rooted in the institution. So it could have been a difficult career move for me it was made easier by working with really good head teachers and them allowing me to still be engaged in the life of their schools. I mentioned in my introduction that you had been nominated as for a kindness in leadership leading light, and you spoke very passionately about the importance of kindness in leadership. Why is kindness important and how do you balance kindness with challenge and being a bit tougher sometimes? Well, it was a big surprise to me when I was nominated for a Kindness in Leadership Award. I wasn't aware there was such a thing at the time. And reflecting on that, by being kind, I think you give a mandate to everybody else within the institution to be kind. And I've often said, I think, when I've, I've talked to parents about the most important things about Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, I often used to say that it's a kind school. 
and that yes we want our young people to achieve and we want them to be confident and we want them to go into be great successes in their lives but they're nothing if they're not kind and so in, in establishing a climate where people think about each other and think about the impact of what they do and what they say it trickles down so that if i'm in my dealings with people i'm doing that my hope is that every member of staff is doing exactly the same with everybody else that they come into contact with and that the the young people are kind to each other how does that fit with with the role of being a head teacher a lot of people can confuse kindness with being soft and i i don't think that's true i can give hard messages and throughout my career have had to give hard messages i hope what i've done is i've always kept it so that it was professional and that people could hear what i was saying but i wasn't personally undermining them and i i always want people to go away from a meeting with me even though some hard words have been spoken of not feeling less than not feeling diminished of feeling more than and you can deliver hard messages and it is all in the way in which you do it and if you are aware of how this is going to impact on the other person and to give them a way out or some support along the way then i think that's much better than allowing people to go away feeling deflated and as if they have been personally attacked how do you find out the effect you are creating on people sometimes it's difficult to speak truth to power isn't it in terms of that relationship between a leader and their staff how do you make sure you're getting honest feedback on how you're operating as a leader i think that's one of the hardest things really and it's even hard for you know a member of staff just to come up at the end of an assembly and just say oh that was a great assembly or that was a powerful message because people feel sometimes that they, they can't say that to the head so i tried very hard particularly within the senior leadership team to develop a culture where we could give feedback and that it's not actually seen as as criticism i could do that in my line management of other people and so that they know they could do that but it was much harder then to reverse that so they could give it to me however i was very very fortunate in working very closely with two deputies who were so much part of the journey they were as much part of what happened to EGA as i was i hope i'm sure they do know that and it was very important for me to make sure that they knew that and felt that and because of that we were able to have frank and open discussions and actually i would seek feedback and i said earlier on didn't i i was a different sort of head when i started at EGA than when i left and i think once you have more confidence you are able to seek that feedback once you have confidence you are able to exercise more humility than as a head going in where you're you're trying to model and show and demonstrate and everybody is looking to you to do things i'm not sure it would have been very easy to have received feedback so positively at that time we talked about kindness and kindness was very much at a premium over the last couple of years during the pandemic when schools just like the NHS had to keep going you were providing an essential 
face-to-face service for some vulnerable children and the, the children of key workers, even at the height of lockdown. But you also had to innovate and learn how to deliver education in very different ways to children who were at home. What have you learned about leadership during the pandemic, do you think? I was in the position during the pandemic where I went back to being a head teacher as well as an executive head teacher, just through a circumstances that EGA meant that I was responsible for leading the school during that time. And it was very frightening initially because nobody knew what's going to happen. We didn't know what was going to be the impact of our decisions. Nobody knew at that time. The advice and support coming centrally was very, very patchy. And there was almost a a culture of blame. I learnt how, I guess, schools and head teachers are an accessible authority figure. And in a time when people are worried, confused, frightened, sometimes they're angry and they want to lash out and they can't do it. They can't do it to other people. The world has disappeared from them. You know, nobody is working anymore, but the only people who they can get hold of are the head teachers and the schools. And so I felt that we had to deal with a lot of community angst and anger and fear, as well as what was going on among our own school community. What I also learned, however, was the importance of communication and not just with the community outside the school, but with our staff, many of whom were working at home. They're only coming in on rotors and they had all had their own fears and their own, you know, there were health issues within their families as well, of making sure that they still felt part of the school. The importance of communication between students and their teachers, the importance of making sure that we were communicating with families they were thrown into the deep end of of how to home educate, what could they do, how to manage all the emotions of of their children. And we had to be there to provide that support where it seemed that support at every other level had been taken away. It probably was, for me, one of the most challenging parts of being a leader. It tested my resilience to the absolute limits. I didn't have the same people around me because they didn't have the leadership team. Many of them were extremely clinically vulnerable and were working from home. So it felt very lonely in a way that I haven't felt for a long time. Huge degree of responsibility and a bit lost because schools are lively, happy places which are noisy and full of life. And that's where you get your energy from. And when it's not like that, it's very easy to lose your way. We did get through it amazingly and great feedback. And it was it was lovely having feedback from families when we did things well. That always makes a huge difference. We're very used to fielding complaints and concerns, but we're getting feedback from families when they felt that something had been done well. It was just a huge, hugely encouraging for everybody. Yeah, I mean, that must be very satisfying after such a a challenging and difficult couple of years. Just one final question. We've been talking about some of the great things you've achieved as a head in in creating excellent and outstanding schools and 
creating wonderful learning environments for the children that you are responsible for. The theme of this podcast series is about lessons in leadership, and it's a bit unfair to ask you this, but what what would be the top two or three lessons in leadership you think you'd take away from your 20 years as a school leader? I would say never underestimate, never, ever underestimate the power that you have to make a difference. And as a young, youngish, newish head, I didn't realise, I don't think, how walking around the school and how if you stop and talk to people, how important it is to them that it might be just one of 50, 60 conversations I might have in a day where I'm just checking in with people, seeing how they are, asking about you know their child going off to university or whatever it is. But for them, the fact that the head has remembered it, it may well be one of the most important conversations that they have that day. And I think for me, it was really, once I realised that, you realise that it is something that you just can't leave to chance, that working with getting people on built board, making sure they understand that you know who they are and that they can talk to you and that they are part of that journey was really, really important for me. Obviously, with, with young people in schools, that the power that you have to make a difference to the life of a child as well, that the way that you behave, the structures that you put in place can change things for young people. And that's incredibly important. The other thing is, I think, to remain optimistic, whatever just and sometimes it feels like I'm a misplaced optimism but I have always throughout my career believed always believed that we could do it that we could do things better that there is absolutely a huge responsibility to keep believing that things can be better and one of the things that I used to have on the wall of my office was just something it was a picture of EGA looking down into the the city and it just said underneath the future of cities like London depends on schools like EGA and when I was talking to people about that and and explaining what I meant I, I said well if we don't have schools like EGA where young people from different backgrounds learn together work together play together in school they'll never ever do it in the future so I guess the lesson there is is that Actually, we may be a small part of the future, but what we're doing really, really matters because each individual child that goes out of EGA with that understanding that they are part of this fantastic global city and that they can relate and get on and understand everybody else, then we're making a big, big difference to what the future might look like. That's a lovely image to finish on. Many thanks, Joe, for sharing your thoughts on, on leadership and, and much else besides. I'm sure the many thousands of girls it will be by now who've passed through the schools that you led will always be grateful to you for your leadership and the difference that you've made to their lives. Thank you for spending time with us and good luck with whatever comes next. Thank you, Justin. It's a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. 
We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.